Okay. All right. Today, we're going to talk about Origen, who was a disciple of Clement of Alexandria, a uh, student of his in the in, uh, city of Alexandria in Egypt. He's, uh, his lifespan, kind of a long one, he kind of takes us from the time of the uh, Irene- end of Irenaeus' life, uh, Clement's life. He's pretty contemporary with uh, a little younger than uh, Tertullian. And by the end of his life, he takes us up to Cyprian, uh, convert sort of the mid-third century. So he ties us from the uh, fathers of the second century, taking us up to almost sort of uh, the point right before we get to the Great Persecution and the uh, Council of Nice conversion of Constantine Council of Nicaea. He's one of the most significant uh, early Christian writers, although a, a great majority, I think, of his works have been destroyed. But um, to give you some idea of the scope, uh, Jerome records 800 titles of his works. Uh, other authors list the 800, I think. And then um, there's approximate, and other authors ascribed him, yeah, just grab a, there's a chair over there. And uh, um, another author's described to him two th- so 2,000 works and another 6,000 works. Uh, well, how do, you, how do you write that many works? Well, one thing is he had uh, wealthy admirers who hired seven scribes, shorthand scribes, to follow him around, uh, taking down, you know, as he would, as he would go about his business, you know, to, to his, so that he could be writing, and then they would, uh, had, and then he had copiers who would fair copy the, the stenography. So that's how you get six thousand works in your lifetime. <laughs> but, uh, but otherwise, uh, but but almost most of this stuff is not around anymore. So, um, but he's the, his influence uh, comes through church history, and his influence uh, is in two major fields. On the one side, uh, his his uh, sort of spiritual uh, theology, and the other, what we would call his, uh, let's say, theology of of creation, I guess. The origin is somewhat controversial. I mean, here, I mean, we've been reading um, these church fathers. I guess Tertullian so far has been the one that, you know, because the early ones they, you know, wrote a couple books each and, uh, you know, a few letters. And then Tertullian, we got quite a bit of work. And now Origen, you know, this enormous mass of work, dwarfing by far any previous Christian writer or, uh, you know, probably even any later Christian writer. Possibly, you know, exceptions of, uh, well, those would even come close would be Augustine, Chrysostom, and uh, Theodore Mopsuestia. But uh, but the um, some of his ideas were controversial, and therefore he was were condemned at, t- at various points through church history. Uh, there was a controversy in the 300s about him, and then <coughs> a local synod in Egypt uh, condemned him in around 400, and then he was his... Uh, some of his doctrines were condemned in the Fifth Ecumenical Council under Justinian in the 500s. The, the condemnations all pretty much go to his uh, doctrine of creation and its ramifications. This, um, this side of origin, 
which were his attempt, attempts to, essentially he was trying to con, uh, counteract Gnosticism, so they were anti-Gnostic, but in some ways he failed to, uh, to do that. But that influence, though, his sort of compromises with Gnosticism, um, first off, these are the parts of Origen's writings that you can read about because that survived. It's his, um, his, he wrote a systematic theology textbook called On First Principles, and that we have in a Latin translation as well as some Greek uh, fragments, and that you can actually read the whole thing. But it sur- but his influence uh, affected a lot of other church writers, so that even where his direct influence is no longer felt, his ideas kind of have percolated down through other people, so that uh, even today you'll sometimes hear um, Origen's ideas, uh, often not, not ascribed to Origen, but kind of just passed on. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that when we talk in detail about that. The other side was uh, his spiritual writings. He was a very devout person. He uh, lived a very ascetical life in the way, um, of course, this was because, and I'll talk about, when I talk about his life, I'll tell you, but, you know, kind of the, this um, confluence of the idea of the true philosopher, because the ancient idea of a philosopher was not a guy at a university uh, teaching in the philosophy department, but as a religious figure. Um, a kind of um, religious leader, uh, someone who lived the philosophical life, was living a, a religious life dedicated to the knowledge of God, and also the early Christian ideas of uh, you know poverty and so on. And so Origen kind of combines those to live what is, seems very much like the life of, of monastics. Of course, Anthony the Great isn't born yet. Uh, he was born not too long after Origen's death. But so in Origen we have a kind of precursor of uh, monastic spirituality. And his writings here largely were in his uh, biblical commentaries, of which he wrote a lot. Uh, and these are a lot of this, these writings have mostly uh, mostly not survived. So, unlike his heretical writings, which you can pick up and read uh, all there for you, um, these uh, the spiritual writings were mostly lost. But they uh, were very influential. Now you're probably all familiar with the book called the Philokalia collection of uh, works on on uh, prayer put together on Mount Atlas about uh, the end of the 1700s and early 1800s. Well, the name Philokalia, uh, love of the beautiful things, but it it was a, actually a book, a name of an earlier book uh, written by uh, Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, and Basil's brother, Gregory of Nyssa. They compiled a book called the Philokalia, and it was collections of writings by Origen, on spirituality. And so those excerpts um, preserved, of course, preserved a lot of origin, but they, the reason they, I mean, they collected Origen's writings the same way that uh, Nicodemus the Hagarite and uh, Macarius of Corinth were collecting the writings of the later church fathers on prayer, because he was seen as the great writer on, on the spiritual life. 
And so the, he was very influential on them and other uh, church writers. So this, our kind of spiritual theology, uh, you see this in some of uh, Gregor Nisa's writings I'll, I'll mention, will come out. Uh, that tradition is very much part of our church tradition today, even though you can't just say, well, just look at Origen's book such and such and you'll see it all. You really have to see it um, either through compilations of his fragments, which are not easily available, or through the writings of his um, disciples or kind of followers. Years, I mean, of course, uh, the Cappadocian fathers didn't personally know Origen. They were later, but uh, not that much later. But they, uh, the, a good example would be in the, the writing of um, Greg of Nisa. He has a, a book called The Life of Moses in which he uh, it's very much about the spiritual life and it's taking the Old Testament life of, of Moses and using it as a sort of symbolical um, teaching about the spiritual life and he uses the ascent to Mount Sinai as the ascent of the spiritual life. You see the same image in Gregory of Nazianzus. Now we don't actually, as far as I know, we don't have that particular um, exegesis in surviving writings of origin, although there's some similar passages uh, referring to Mount Tabor and some other Old Testament, but the uh, the uh, style of exegesis is the same, kind of an allegorical uh, exegesis, and then also the content is very much origin's views on, on the spiritual life. So when you're reading Gregory of Nyssa or, or Gregory Theologian, his or, uh, theological orations, that exegesis probably is reflecting the uh, the uh, source of origin. Yes. When you say that the, the Cappadocian fathers are picking up and keep continuing his spiritual uh, uh, you know, the characteristics mm -hmm. of origin, could you list some of those characteristics? Well, you just yeah. Well, that's origin? I will uh, do that. I just basically just here want to set up why why talk about origin i mean he's he's condemned uh most of his works are destroyed what what's the point <laughs> but that's why because they're because he influences the christian theology uh for good and our our spiritual theology and also in some ways for bad in our attitude uh to the world uh not our but i mean of certain people pick up on originistic ideas and you'll see them every now and then kind of coming in yes did you have a question? Okay. What there are, uh, there's a few things of his that are around. Um, in the Anti-Nicene Fathers series, there's um, some volumes. Volume 4, which is the second part of Tertullian, has his On First Principles. It also has his uh, work against Celsus, the, which is an apologetic work, and a couple of his letters. And then Volume 9, which was... Um, has his uh, commentary on Gospel of John and commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The uh, Ancient Christian Writers series published some recent, um, that's this blue series, some recent finds of his, the uh, Treatise on the Passover and the Dialogue with Heraclides. There probably are some more origin in this series, I, I'm not uh, sure, but the Paulist Press, I think, is the one they do on prayer. And his exhortation to martyrdom in with that, I think it's, in that same volume, isn't it? Uh, uh, it's in the Library of Christian Classics. Which, okay. Do you, do you 
which I'm talking about. The one Westminster poem? Yeah. Oh, that's in there? Yeah, I just bought it uh, a couple of days ago. Which, which one? The on prayer. On prayer. On martyrdom. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was in the uh, Paul's Press one, but... It might too, be, but... Whatever. But anyway, those are those are around, we'll, and we'll talk about these. As, I'm going to give you his life chronologically, but just so there's stuff out there that you can get. The major source for uh, Origin's life is our old friend Eusebius, who's kind of the person of uh, church history. In in the 300s, uh, well, I should say that Eusebius start. I mean, um, Origin started out. In Alexandria, and then he, when he was kind of driven out of Alexandria, he went to live in Caesarea, where he was supported by the local bishop and the bishop of Jerusalem, who was uh, Clement's uh, former pupil, Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria actually ended up his life as a priest in Jerusalem. So, um, Origen went to live in Caesarea, where he was invited to start a school. And so, in the later controversies, um, the um, the uh, bishop of Alexand- uh, bishop of Caesarea was a defender. Uh, I think his name is uh, Pamphilius of Caesarea was defender of Origen in the 300s. Pamphilius's uh, disciple is Eusebius, and Pamphilius had written a five volume five volume defense of which only one volume survives. So Eusebius. Uh, has an advantage that he's living in the he's the bishop of the city where Origen lived. He knew a lot of people that had uh, knew Origen personally, and he had access to Origen's library at the time of his death. Is there, and his own teacher was a uh, great defender of Origen. So, so the uh, picture of of Origen in here it's very enthusiastic. Uh, he sees him as a one a great church father and. Um, Extremely spiritual person. Uh, the book uh, six is, you know, pretty much dedicated to Origen's life, with some interspersing uh, of other historical events. But uh, you get a very vivid picture of Origen in here. This is a actually a wonderful reading. I mean, because because it uh, it's it's faced. He had a, apparently a collection of a hundred letters by Origen, none of which have well, mostly not survived. There's a couple in that Antiochian volume, but. Uh, but the uh, the account is you know is very uh, detailed and uh, probably extremely accurate, but it's uh, but it's based on sources that don't exist anymore. So we're we're very indebted to Eusebius for recording all that. The other uh, source we have is one of one of the students of Origen in Caesarea was. Uh, Someone who became a bishop known as Gregory the Wonderworker, and he was a missionary in Asia Minor. He, uh, when he left the school, he gave a oration to uh, kind of uh, to Origen in uh, praise of uh, God's providence in bringing him there to study with Origen. And it's a uh, you know full of praises, but it's, it's also a description of the course of study at the school. So that helps to fill out our knowledge, and that you can uh, that's in the Antinicene Father series. Also, there's I think volume six has the works of Gregory Thaumaturgus, I believe. So you can you can read that there. Okay, well now I'll just uh, go through his life and try to put this some of this in perspective. Origin, unlike we've talked about the apologists so far, they've basically been pagan 
uh, philosophers who became Christian and used their uh, pagan knowledge to try to address the, the pagan world, their, 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 their philosophical knowledge. But, but Origen, his parents are, are devout Christians, and his father was martyred at the time when uh, Origen was 17 years old. He, uh, he wanted to go out and be with his father and be martyred also, but his mother didn't want that, so she hid all his clothing so that he was not able to go out of the house. And so he survived the persecution. Yes, but, uh, but he was uh, very brilliant, and he was had been studying Greek literature. So his start, this was around 202, with his father's death, he kind of had to go out. Well, all the, all the family property was confiscated. He had to go out and support the family afterwards by giving lectures on Greek literature, which which he was a very brilliant. Yes. Is, it, is this a Greek tragedy or Greek literature well, poetry? Well, um, I actually don't know. Which is he just says Greek literature. There, they doesn't really give details. Uh, it, it's presumably it's um, you know yeah artistic literature rather than philosophical. Later, he goes into philosophy. At this time. Well, there had been a persecution where his father was killed, but there was a. Apparently, this is when Clement of Alexandria left the city, and the school, the catechetical school, was broken up. So there was no one to do missionary work among the educated pagans. In this situation, because he was a teacher himself and was well known, pagan people started contacting him and coming to him and saying, Well, we want to learn about Christianity. Why don't you come and instruct us? So he started uh, secretly going to people's houses and giving classes on the Christian faith. And as a result, you know, many people were converting. And the, the law, um, Septimus Severus, at one point, he decided to stop persecuting the church directly, but he made a law that no one was allowed to become a Christian. And so what happened was the catechumens that were studying with um, uh, Origen were being arrested and, and put to death, uh, taken to trials and put to death. And Origen was accompanying them to the trials, but because of the way the law was, he was not being arrested and killed himself. But the people in the crowd uh, you know, wanted to kill him because he was causing the deaths of, as they thought, all these people. So uh, he had a, a lot of attempts to murder him, but somehow he was always rescued and, and never was killed. And they um, they had troops stationed around the city trying to intercept him to keep him from getting out to people's houses. And at some point he had to uh, leave. He left the city. He went to uh, went to Rome for a brief time during the this, during the time of Hippolytus and then up to uh, to Caesarea around 215, I guess, 216 when there was a uh, a persecution not of the church but of the city by the emperor, I think Commodus, who uh, was angry with the city for some reason and was uh, closing the schools and causing problems. So he went up there, and while he was there, he was uh, preaching at at, at Caesarea uh, with the support of the bishops there. But his own bishop uh, didn't like that idea, and, and when the trouble was over, called him back. Now, one of the things that happened during this time uh, is that he was asked 
some point to to start uh, taking over the catechetical work full-time. And as part of this, he did several things. One is that he sold all of his literature books because he decided that if he was going to be a full-time uh, teacher for the church that he didn't need his Greek literature anymore, so he got rid of all that. And he began the study of Greek philosophy, in which I'll talk more about in a minute. But one of the other things he did was because he he was having to go to people's houses secretly to teach, uh, and he was worried because he was going having to go to teach women as well as men, that this would cause a scandal. So he decided to um, stop that by uh, castrating himself in order to avoid any scandal, which um, taking literally kind of what Christ said about people, uh, you know, being made eunuchs or becoming eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This, uh, as, as it turned out, the church does not uh, does not really approve of doing that, so that kind of later got him into trouble. But, uh, but at, fir- at first it didn't really seem to matter. But uh, just remember it because it comes up later on. But the uh, when he studied Greek philosophy, he started going to classes uh, of someone named Ammonius Saccas, who was uh, a teacher of of uh, Platonism, but apparently was uh, also of a Christian family, and was uh, someone perhaps co- trying to combine Christianity with Platonism. Uh, later in later in life, uh, he was the teacher in Alexandria of someone named, uh, who took the name of Plotinus, who was a uh, pagan follower of uh, Plato who founded a new school of Platonic thought known as Neoplatonism and actually be kind of is very famous in uh, philosophy departments, not so much in ordinary people. But, uh, but uh, anyhow, that's... Um, the Neoplatonism is a kind of uh, more religious and spiritual version of older Platonism, although all the original philosophies were more religious than they are in our college textbooks. Uh, but the uh, there's a kind of connection. It seems like at this time that the uh, you know a lot of people talk about uh, Platonic influence on the church, and even sometimes people talk of Neoplatonic influence on the church, but uh, it seems also that there may have been some Christian influence on the uh, Neoplatonism. That, although it doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you know, refer to any Christian doctrines. But this, uh, let's say, a desire to combine philosophy with the spiritual life, which is which really epitomizes Origen. You know, also to some extent is what you see in the Neoplatonic movement—a kind of combination of of the of the two, spirituality and and uh, philosophy. When he gets back, he's, he's put officially in charge of the school. He gets a um, disciple to help him with the classes. And they actually, um, from what we can see from Gregory the Thaumaturgist, that this is not, it, it kind of goes from just traveling around secretly teaching Christianity to where they set up, in a sense, what we might think of more of as a university. The, the subjects, because the... Uh, Gregory gives us his curriculum uh, for what he studied with Origen. And it starts out um, with logic, uh, dialectic, sort of uh, like an Aristotle, the uh, mathematics, ge- uh, or the geometry, 
uh, astronomy, and then progresses uh, from so in, in the sciences. So the science and math, logic goes then to uh, the study of ethics, and somewhere in there also is uh, Greek philosophy as part of this. Well, of course, Stoic ethics would maybe be from Stoics, and the earlier stuff would include stuff from the uh, Platonic philosophers. But then only after you go through all of that do you get to study theology. So that was, obviously, that's a lot different than running out and trying to convert people secretly to Christianity. So this was, a, you know, a big uh, program presupposing that people were going to come and study there for a long time. So we could think of it as a sort of Christian university that Origen is teaching at, and well, head of. He, during this time is when he writes his uh, his sort of textbook, on theology, the first systematic theology, the for, on first principles, and this is also where he begins his uh, sort of lifelong pursuit of biblical exegesis. And these are two things I want to talk about because they are um, kind of his most basic works. Well, let's see, 20, um, about 35 when he was setting this up. The, on first principles, I'll talk about this. This is kind of the heart of his, you know, why he's condemned. Why, how did he get, how did he get condemned? So, because in trying to answer the Gnostics, he essentially uh, borrowed a little too much Gnosticism. Okay, what is, what were the Gnostics? They, remember, they are the people who reject the material universe as evil. Okay, so they look at the world and say, okay, well, people, you know, the soul is good, but we're in a world with sickness, suffering, death. So the, the material world is something bad. And they, they see initially that coming from the, the one God, there's a, there's a pleroma of the sort of angelic uh, processions, and that's, that's, you know, fine. That's the the spiritual world that's good. But then they see that one of the angels uh, turned against God and created the material world in trapping souls into the, into the material world, and that's us. We are trapped souls stuck in these bodies because of some evil angel who some of the Gnostics identify with the Old Testament God because in Genesis it tells us that God created the material world. So therefore, he must be the evil angel who, who did this. So they have, so in Gnosticism, um, okay, you have sort of evil um, Old Testament creation, creator, okay, and uh, the souls trapped by him. Okay. Now, Origins a Christian. Actually, it's, what's interesting of the, the atmosphere, of course, uh, in Alexandria, this is where Vasilides, um, sort of, we maybe have read um, his account of the crucifixion, where he didn't, he believed that Christ was a spirit, laughing, you know, watching the crucifixion and laughing as he flew up to heaven. Um, he lived in Alexandria, and uh, then uh, Valentinus, who was later went to Rome, he's from from Egypt as well. So some of the, the kind of most important Gnostic writers had lived in Egypt in the 2nd century. Well, 
Origen himself, he was living with a wealthy Christian woman who was a sort of patroness of, of a theological study, and she was having sort of supporting him while he was studying. She also had a, a Gnostic, which otherwise we don't know much about, named Paul, who was a kind of a fashionable Gnostic teacher at the time, living at her house and giving her class, giving his classes on Gnosticism at her house as well. So the problem is that the people in the church were interested, you know, they didn't, they weren't, um, uh, let's say, sort of as firm, and so they were interested in Gnosticism. So they they were patronizing the Gnostics at the same time as they were helping the people in the church. So Origen's main obstacle or main uh, opponents in Alexandria were these Gnostics. So his theology, this side of his theology, is, is really trying to answer those questions. How did we end up with an evil world how is it that we're, you know, that, that people are trapped in the evil world? So he um, decides that the way to do this is to partly agree with the Gnostics and say, okay, well, yes, we are. We're stuck in an evil world. How did that happen? So, and uh, part of the Gnostics, they, they kind of the rejection of the Old Testament because, well, the Old Testament talks about the material world and all these, you know, Old Testament's all full of battles and um, wars, people killing each other, committing sins. It's you know, not very spiritual. In fact, it's sort of it, it sort of seems appropriate to this, you know, Old Testament creator of, of the material world. That at what kind of book it is. Uh, so they Gnostics argue that there's no spiritual value to the Old Testament. It's just it's just this stuff about the created world. So Origen um, tries to answer this by saying, okay, you're right that the uh, stories in the Old Testament are all about the material world and they don't seem to have any spiritual value. He said that, yes, the uh, the material world does seem to be evil. And so how does it happen that this happened? And he, what he does is he, he now agrees that the original creation was spiritual. And he uses the word noose or the kind of the, in a sort of... Uh, straightforward way we tra- translate as mind but in a, in a spiritual writings it comes to stand for the the spiritual reality of the soul is called the noose so that that God created and then he's but what he says is that that actually it's it's that God who is the, he's talking about is the Old Testament God okay the same as the New Testament God created the nooses and he said that the reason you don't understand the Old Testament is because you're understanding it literally, but that the real meaning of the Old Testament, again, now we talk about how Clement was influenced by Philo. You remember the, that the Greeks had developed this allegorical interpretation to explain the myths, how to get, how to get sort of philosophy out of the myths. Well, Philo used the same method to get Greek philosophy out of the Old Testament. Origen uses it to get a sort of a semi-Gnosticism out of the Old Testament. He says, okay, that when it talks in the Old Testament about the creation, it's really talking about the creation of the spirits of our, all of our nooses. So we were all originally created as spirits uh, living in contemplation of God. But the fall was not eating an apple in a garden someplace, but it was turning away from this contemplation of God in the spiritual universe. And so, because we, we, you know, a bunch of us here, because we all fell away, 
we left the spiritual universe. And so by our own actions, we entered into the material world. So it's not that God, it's not that the Old Testament God, you know, in a, out of his, out of evil, stuck us here and trapped us here, but that the Old Testament God, or who is the New Testament God also, created us all to be spiritual, and we stuck ourselves down here by our turning away from him. Then, um, so the, the world, the way it is, now he doesn't see the material world as entirely evil. He sees that it's allowed by God uh, as a sort of therapeutic thing, that it's, that it's here uh, to help us. That, so when we fall away, we get into the material world because material life uh, sort of stops us from turning from God and kind of disciplines us. It's our, it's our instructor that turns us back towards God. So each soul fell a different amount, and that's why in life, uh, first off, it's, it's why there's a difference between angels, men, and demons, because he sees that with all three were initially souls, the same kind of souls, but uh, also the differences between people. In that sense, uh, it's sort of similar to uh, the Hindu, you know, the idea of uh, the... Uh, um, it was karma or something, you know, where you kind of, what happens to you is sort of what happened, result of what you did in your previous life. Well, what you get here, what, ha- what the life you have now is because of your falling away in the earlier, in the earlier spiritual world. It's very strange, isn't it, that this is like, <laughs> early, you know, this is, this is what's being taught at Alexandria in the early 200s by the church, but, uh, but it's because he's, well, he's in a world which is very heavily uh, influenced by Gnosticism. So, this is better than Gnosticism, but it doesn't quite cut it. Anyway, yes? Well, I I guess you, you're probably going to speak on that. He, he's getting away from it as necessarily material world as a deliberate yeah. malicious act by the creator, but he's implying that then materialism was, the, the world was created before the fall, but then he's saying that creation is a form of discipline or punishment right. for, for spiritual failures. So exactly. It's a step up. But, but not all the way. Yeah, that's right. And this is um, this is the problem. Now, within this material world, I mean, then, you know, he sees uh, the incarnation and and the Christ and and kind of a restoration. But um, but the the difficulty with this and as to why it was condemned and uh, kind of repeatedly was and why it's a problem still today is that it essentially makes, um, you know, the world be not necessarily an evil thing, but not something good. And part of uh, how it affects uh, still modern life is that particularly, where is marriage? So in this world, uh, marriage is a result, you know, comes about in the fallen world because of the fall into materiality. And you see a little bit, if you read um, Gregory of Nice's On the Creation of Man, he he tweaks this some more to try to make it more Christian, because he realizes that this isn't right. But he still ends up with kind of something similar. So uh, part of what partly has come down is the, is the um, devaluation of, the, of life in the material world as not being something that was part of the intended creation by God and that also that uh, marriage is not part of the 
intended creation, whereas uh, in Genesis, you know, the, the Adam and Eve are created to be married in the Garden of Eden before the fall and given the command to be fruitful and multiply. So in the originist system, that's all kind of put put much later. Um, so that's partly how you still see it come up sometimes in the... In, like I uh, was in a Sunday school class with a bishop, uh, one of our, a retired bishop, uh, and he he uh, told the class, oh, well, you know, all this stuff worrying about evolution or where the Garden of Eden is, he said, this is all Western because in the Orthodox Church we know that everything in the book of Genesis all took place before the Big Bang. And so, so that, well, it does solve all that problems, but, you know, so everybody was really intrigued. Uh, they thought this was great. But the problem with that is that, I mean, it's essentially just taking origin, is that if you say that Adam and Eve in the garden were living before the Big Bang, well, then obviously they weren't living, you know, it wasn't Kentucky, it wasn't the Middle East, it wasn't the Ukraine, but how are we descended from Adam and Eve? I mean, they all lived how many billion years ago? Uh, so part of, I mean, that's an example of what happens is that when people uh, pick up, I mean, the, the ancient, uh, there's a lot of ancient Christian literature, and if you pick it up uncritically and just read something and uh, it looks interesting you know a lot of times you end up with uh, wrong teachings you have to you have to see uh, how the church evaluated what individual writers that's why we talk about the consensus of the church fathers you know the consensus of the fathers is the teaching of the church not uh, every kind of interesting idea that one father comes up with because um, that's where you can get into errors Yes. Yes. If, so uh, I'm having a difficult time mm-hmm. with, some of, with some of it because about 95 percent of what you've said so far is orthodox. Right. I mean, mostly. And so I, what I'm trying to differentiate is what is the five percent that's not. Well, this is um, the part essentially in saying that the that the original creation was of spirits, not of people. In, in a sense. Um, the Christian Church teaches that God created the material world and created us. That paradise was in this world, and so what? What? Uh, but in answer, sort of, in a sense, to kind of answer the Gnostics, he kind of accepted the Gnostic idea that this world is is not good. So therefore, he moved the whole creation out of this world up to uh, the spiritual world. And said, well, essentially, this world only comes into existence after the fall, whereas we would say that the fall happened in this world. So, so we, wouldn't we say that the, the fall happened in this world, but it was also a spiritual rebellion, and our noose became so goofed up that we couldn't really commune anymore with God? That's the whole story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes, I mean that's that doesn't that's, mean though that the material world is evil. Well, right. Well, okay. I that's I don't no. mean that at all, but I mean. Uh, uh, there's there's so many there's so many parts of, of what we're talking about that I have read um, that have been presented as Orthodox theology. Well, I mean, and some I mean, Origen was a Christian after all. I mean, um, it's just that uh, he was a Christian that, in trying to deal with Gnosticism, made some errors, and the errors. Uh, you know, because those errors on two things. I mean, one on the one side, 
he was a monumental presence in the early church and was influencing everybody. On the other side, there were these errors. So the result was that he uh, influenced most early Christian writers, but at the same time, he was ultimately his writings were condemned because of these errors. So, um, you know, when we talk about on the Christian life, I mean, obviously, he was a pious Christian person. You know, that's just that, uh, I mean, he wasn't a Gnostic. He was trying to stop Gnosticism, but he, in doing so, he, you know, he made some mistakes. His um, his ideas on, you know, on, on the uh, the allegorical interpretation that was another uh, pr- problem. I mean, he, Clement also was very heavily dependent on Philo, as as was uh, Origen. But uh, Origen actually is is sort of more uh, more Christian in the way that he also uses the typology of the of like in the New Testament and the uh, as in the ear- other early Christian writers. But he's a little. Uh, if you read his commentaries, uh, particularly of the New Testament uh, commentary on John, it's kind of breathtaking, actually, that he essentially seems to see the Gospels, uh, the life of Christ, as pretty much an allegory of the soul's relationship with God. So, uh, you know, most of us, when we read the New Testament Gospels, we think that the primary purpose, you know, is to read about the life of Christ, but. To him, that's you know not necessarily what they're about. They're really you know they're really uh, like when they're coming to Jerusalem. I mean, this is the logos coming up to the soul, and he he's got a. It's all um, because in answering again the Gnostic criticism of the Old Testament, he says, well, obviously if God inspired the scriptures, and he's defending the Old Testament as divinely inspired, so yeah, God obviously doesn't care about you know who whether the Midianites got killed or the uh, Edomites uh, that's, you know, or took over a city. I mean, who cares? God should, certainly must not. So all the, all the true meaning of the scripture is allegorical. It's in you know, uh, hidden symbols. And so he, uh, he became, uh, I mean, most of, what, most of these thousands of books he wrote were biblical commentaries, and he began the st- intensive study of scripture particularly the Old Testament, um, one of the things he did was he studied Hebrew. He went out and collected, uh, I think he found like four or five other Greek translations besides the Septuagint, and he stuck them all in a in a book called the Hexapla, which was a copy of the Old Testament with columns in which you had the Hebrew and then um, various Greek translations, you know, the Septuagint and the others, in order, because he felt that that the secret meanings of the of the scriptures were hidden in the significances of every single word, so he would analyze the meanings of all the words to try to get at these spiritual meanings. But what he he didn't think was important, because as the Gnostics didn't think, was that the, the literal meaning. So he essentially, for the Old Testament, he felt that the literal meaning of the Old Testament really was the uh, not important at all, and he he talks about how there are a lot of things in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, and then even in his commentary on John, even in the Gospels, he he take like he points to the discrepancies in the Gospels as something that God put into the Gospels so that we would uh, know to look for the spiritual meanings because of the spiritual importance of the spiritual meanings. Especially in the Old Testament, he sees that there's a lot of things in, in the he sees in the Old Testament as being 
um, obviously not historically true, so that we would know that the historical, that the literal meanings are not the meanings we're supposed to be looking at. So he sees the Old Testament. In the New Testament, of course, we look at the Old Testament as having a lot of uh, prophecies and types, you know, like Melchizedek representing Christ. Uh, so he has that line of thought, you know, kind of the Old Testament as prophecies of Christ. But he, he, his main line is he sees the Old Testament as, again, as uh, having symbolical teaching about the relationship of the soul to God. And that's, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it's sort of not that, uh, you know, you can kind of buy it. But uh, when you read it in the New Testament, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a little shocking to think of the, you know, that the, the stories in the gospel are really just there as symbolical uh, things about uh, these teachings rather than having to... Because he doesn't put a lot of significance... Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of this. Okay, remember we talked about how uh, Justin and um, and Clement saw the that the Logos was the source of, of the, all the wisdom in the world, including the philosophers and so on. Well... He divides up the world uh, into sort of a kind of a different kinds levels of knowledge of God, and he starts out at the bottom are the pagans, you know, who are kind of following the myths and worshiping pagan gods, that the, the demons and such. So they're kind of the the bottom, and then above them are the ones receiving the divine logoi coming from the logos, you know, the the, the divine wisdom coming into the world, and they are studying that. And he, these are the philosophers. So they are acquiring, acquiring knowledge from God. Then there are the people who are, um, he calls those the, the followers of Christ, those who, um, he even uses Paul, to, who know only Christ crucified. Um, that's, that, so the people who are studying the literal life of Christ and are kind of... Um, contemplating the earthly life of Christ. So these are the ones he calls the simple Christians. Then above that, he has those who are contemplating the Logos. And these are the, to him, this is the spiritual Christians. Now, um, it sounds terrible, actually, to us, because, you know, he seems he kind of seems to put the literal life of Christ on a kind of that a lower level, you know. So he's not uh, he's not the type of Christian that we would think of today, where you you know your study is to kind of uh, studying the life of Christ and so on. But in one sense, he does have a point, and that is uh, in the in the role of contemplation is your um, relationship with God, a relationship of knowledge, or is it a relationship of prayer? So, in one sense, you could say, yes, a person could be a Christian in the sense of knowing all about the life of Christ, but if he's not praying, then, you know, there's a certain sense in which um, you could say his Christianity is on a somewhat superficial level that he accepts, okay, he accepts that Christ is the Son of God and he accepts that Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead. But if he's not praying, then he doesn't ha- he's not having that personal relationship with God. And so what I think what he's talking about is the need for uh, the life of prayer 
so that we are in communion with God as well as knowing about him and kind of being Christians in a formal sense. Yes? Um, would he add to that, like, such things as good works? Because good mm-hmm. works and prayer are both yeah. to the knowledge. Yes. I, I have five minutes. I'll use them to answer that question. He, um, this, this spiritual theology, this is, he, he has these um, stages of the spiritual life that you see. You'll see it in Gregory of Nice and, and Gregory of uh, Nazianzus too. But uh, it starts out, for him, the beginning of the spiritual life is repentance. So you have to repent from evil to be a, to be a Christian, you know, to be a Christian at all. Then you, you kind of, after you repent from your uh, evil deeds, then the first thing uh, you have to do is start living a life of virtue. So in your in your life, you're living the Christian life of doing good deeds and avoiding the evil ones. Then after you are doing that, then you can begin to... Uh, you, so you, you've remedied your actions. You, you went from doing sinful things to doing good things. Now you need to remedy your soul by purification. And this is where asceticism comes in. And uh, remember, he lived an uh, ascetical life himself. That the, the purification of the soul is to uh, take the uh, sinful desires out of us, to, to restrain them, so that we're not only cleaning up what we do, but we're cleaning up kind of who we are. The, from the purification of the soul, we can then move on to, uh, in here he puts sort of the contemplation of the of Christ, you know, the, the life of Christ, and then from the contemplation of the, of the uh, earthly life of Christ, the contemplation of the Logos, uh, which leads us to a union with God, a spiritual union with God, that we uh, later writers use the term uh, theosis. And so, um, in origin, you know, you see this with a kind of this sort of ambiguity that he, I mean, um, you see the kind of strange things about him, but in a way, his basic system and his basic intuition of the need for a, a, an ascent, an ascetical ascent to a spiritual communion with God, that intuition remains um, kind of accepted by the church and is sort of further developed by our later spiritual writers, such as, such as Gregory of Nyssa and so on. The um, and in, in our, the modern Philokalia is kind of taking some of these. Yes, it is. Uh, it's like a Platonic emanation, you know. Well, uh, it, you can see how the Gnostics have easily corrupted yeah. levels of spiritual elitism. Well, okay, you could accept uh, that the Gnostics don't. Um, they don't believe in any of this part. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, there's a... For them, the um, spiritual atheism comes from avoidance of materiality. And I think what he's... You know, what he's saying here is, is essentially Christian of um, the different aspects of our you know life in Christ and bringing us to uh, the communion with God. Uh, it's mostly yeah. the, the upper level would be I mean, most people fall into the category of simple Christians because we, well, we live in society to some yeah. extent, but it would be monks and, and well, clerics or... Not necessarily, because um, 
one shouldn't mistake simple for uneducated. Uh, in his case, what he's talking about, for him, uh, true gnosis, but true knowledge is uh, theoria or contemplation. So contemplation is prayer. So I think what he's talking about is not lay people versus monks. I think what he's talking about is the difference between what we would call nominal Christians, Christians who assent to the faith but are not trying to be in communion with God and those who are attempting to live a spiritual life. So hopefully, uh, you know, most Christians who are trying to be Christians would be trying to pray and to uh, to be in communion with God, and that's what he's that's what he's really talking about. I'll just uh, kind of just to finish his his life that he he, uh, he had, was going on various trips. He visited uh, the mother of uh, the Emperor Septimus Alexander. He uh, had some correspondence with the Emperor Philip the Arabian. He was um, traveling and. When he got to uh, Palestine on his way to Athens to debate with with the pagan philosophers there, the bishops there decided to ordain him a priest. And this is where the bishop of Alexandria said, "Wait a minute, you know he was uh, he did this uh, castration thing back there. He can't be ordained a priest." And so they, uh, the church in Alexandria, excommunicated him for that. So the bishops in, Al- in Palestine said, "Well, you should come live here," and that's how he ended up in Caesarea. So from about 232 to 253, that's when he was in. That's when he's in Palestine, and that's where Gregory the Wonder Worker was with him. And so part of his works take place there. And actually, that's why the Hexapla ends up there. That's what, so. That's why Eusebius is able to describe it to, for us. Um, all right. Well, that's. Are there any questions? Because we're pretty much getting Vesper's time. Yeah. We've just described a lot about Origen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that. Uh, Let's say if this class had been taught a couple hundred years ago or five thousand years ago, would the church have allowed this much of originism to have been described? Uh, in other words, oh, yeah. they were basically destroying all his works and almost trying to put his well, memory out of existence. There was a period when, yeah, which that changed because now we're kind of talking about it again. So. Yeah. Well, first off, I think you have to remember that you know, I mean, the Cappadocians were making the Philokalia. I mean, obviously his works were um, around their state. I mean, the problem, the reason he came up with the Fifth Council was not because they just found a leftover heretic who didn't get sufficiently condemned, but because the monks in Palestine were studying his works, and. I mean, they were studying his works for good reasons because they he, because it had uh, a lot of um, kind of advocacy of the spiritual life. But on the other hand, some of the erroneous parts of of Origen, his, his erroneous doctrines, were also influencing certain people, and so that was alarming the church and saying, "Well, we better uh, condemn." So the cond- condemnations pretty much deal with uh, this. There's one other error uh, actually there that they could condemn is that he felt that the one of the souls never fell and that that is the soul of Christ. <coughs> so for him, the Logos united with the soul of Christ and so that way he has Christ being both human and divine. The problem is it's Nestorianism it's because it's two people because now you have the Logos and you have the, the Noose is just one of us, right? Um, so that uh, that's an error that was condemned because it because it implies two people and that's 
that was a, but that was a problem. I mean, the whole Christological controversy was about trying to resolve that. The other thing, idea he had, um, which Gregory of Nyssa follows in his great catechism, is that he thought that this therapeutic work of the of the uh, material world, that through it, God would ultimately use it to bring all the nooses back to communion with God um, eventually. Now, um, the idea that everyone will be restored, we, the church does not accept because we accept free will. So we cannot say that God will make everyone repent because and Origen himself doesn't say that. Origen is very, I mean, one of the things with uh, his controversy with Gnosticism is that he definitely is believes in free will. So, I mean, it's, it's free will on the downside, whether you ended up an archangel or a demon. And it's also free will on the upside, you know, I mean, whether you repent, whether you come into the knowledge, the extent that you come into the communion of God is dependent on your choice. So he's not strictly advocating the heretical position, which would be that sort of how by, uh, you know, that it would necessarily, by by the nature of things, that everyone's going to be saved. But it's his opinion that God, through his, um, let's say, uh, you know, uh, loving actions, you know, his, his, his desire to save the world, that his, his therapies will eventually succeed in making everyone repent. And of course, and and so when he his idea is that of course maybe not quite uh, we you know talk about the the um, crucifixion as and the resurrection as bringing you know making possible the salvation of all men for origin it makes possible the salvation of all nooses that uh, therefore so that's applying to angels and demons as well so he when he says that he thinks everyone will repent in the end he means the demons the devil every everybody. Um, now, a lot of times, you you know, you have in the saint in the Desert Fathers, you know, there are saints who are praying for the devil. So there does seem to be uh, the idea that possibly they could repent and be saved, but uh, but that's a sort of an opinion. Not uh, the Church doesn't t- teach that, and and we don't. The Church doesn't profess to know what's going to happen to all them, other than there is the uh, lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it doesn't look too good, but uh, maybe the but of course, Origen's talking about in the long term, so maybe the lake of fire eventually will bring some repentance about. But uh, but hey, that's that's uh, another one of his uh, you know heresies, sort of too, that uh, that is talked about. <clears throat>